From chips to mash, baked dauphinois or hasselback, the humble potato has to be the most versatile of any ingredient. Over the years as a chef, I've cooked spuds in loads of different ways, but in this episode, I'm going to be speaking to the self-proclaimed potato queen as Poppy O'Toole joins me for a chat. No, I did a, a video of a Hasselback and it got 39.4 million views. 39.4 million views. Oh my God. And after the wettest July we've ever had in Oldstead, I catch up with Dickie to assess what the impact has been on our crops. This July and into August has just been relentless rain, like never knowing a July like it. It's really affected what we've been doing. My name is Tommy Banks and you're listening to Seasoned, my podcast all about life at my restaurant, The Black Swan, and the farm where I grow all of the ingredients. This is the journey from field to fork. This is Seasoned, episode 18, Spuds. As you'll know by now, my well-seasoned club is the only place to get extra content and recipes and the chance to win some of our exclusive giveaways. Last week, we announced a winner of our latest competition and jam... Well, we've not managed to speak to you yet. Check your inboxes, check your spam folders too. We've got a stay at the Abbey Inn waiting for somebody to claim. Anyone who hasn't yet subscribed, well, don't miss out. We've got an even bigger prize to give away at the end of August, as one lucky winner will pick up a meal and stay at the Michelin-starred restaurant, The Black Swan, and you get to spend the day foraging with me and Dickie too. Entries cost just £5 a month, and all the details are at www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. Now, you won't have failed to notice that the last few weeks have been quite wet. Wherever you are in the country, you'll have had rain on top of rain on top of rain. It's felt more like April than July. Well, you might be pleased to know I've discovered exactly why that is. It's all down to my dad. Honestly, back in May, I recorded with TB at the start of the series and we were talking about the weather prospects of the summer and he was worried about a lack of rain. So, do you think we're going to have enough hay this winter to feed all the cattle? Tell me whether we're going to get a drought again because it's starting towards a drought now. All our cattle are grass-fed, so we need lots of grass to feed them. If we get a year like last year where we had a bad drought, there just simply isn't enough grass grown. Um, so it's one thing feeding them on grass all summer, but you need to harvest enough grass to feed them through the winter as well. I wasn't worried because we've got a good grass growth uh, this spring, but now I've cut it and it's come dry. It's wonderful for making hay, but the secondary growth isn't going to happen if we don't get some rain. We don't know if it's going to happen or not. If it comes a bit of rain next week, no problem. Ever since then, well, it's not stopped. Instead of facing a shortage of grass to feed our animals through the winter, we've now got a second cut on its way and we'll have more than enough hay to get through. But all that rain has created all sorts of challenges for the rest of the team, as Dickie knows all too well. So this July and into August has just been relentless rain, like never knowing a July like it. I think by the 20th of July it was the third wettest July on record in North Yorkshire. Um, 31st of July alone we had over two inches of rain so 
it's really affected what we've been doing. Um, you sort of realise how, when you're working with the seasons, how reliant you are on the weather. Um, you know, last year was absolutely brilliant, like constant sun, uh, really high temperatures, complete opposite this year. The sort of plus side of that, you know, bad weather is that, whereas last year we were irrigating every day to get our harvest of potatoes, carrots, beetroots, etc. None of that's had to go on, so that's obviously saving a lot of time and energy. And it means that we'll have a fantastic crop of all those root vegetables. Um, onions have swelled really well, the berries right through July, the sort of red currants, black currants, amazing yields. And I think that will transfer into autumn as well with, you know, apples and sloes and damsons and stuff, which have a, a decent a decent year on that. So it swings around about, it's different years, you know, different problems and problems to solve. I'm just sat here looking at that field over there and I can see mushrooms popping up. So they, they love a, a good downpour of rain. So, you know, it's just working with the seasons rather than against them. Dickie's putting a positive spin on what has been a tough few weeks. Turning up for work every day, usually before 7am, with the rain falling, it's not what Dickie and his farm team were planning. And there's some products in particular that have really suffered. At this time of year, we should be gathering basket after basket of meadow sweet, but the wet weather means we're woefully short. We had a target of 2.5 kilos of meadow sweet. Um, which is a lovely wild flowering plant that we use a lot in pastry. This year, we're well and well over a kilo short of that target. So, you know, that's going to have an effect on future menus. We can't buy that product that we make. You know, it's super refined. It's so intense. But I kind of feel like that's kind of what drives the creativity within the business. Like, it means that by sort of February, March time next year, we'll have to come up with a different ingredient in, in, in the same dish. Um, and that just keeps it fresh and exciting for everyone. It's a real shame because Metasweet is one of my favourite secret ingredients, which can add flavour like nothing else. Metasweet's a really cool ingredient. So Metasweet, I think uh, the word comes from mead sweet traditionally, which was, it was something that people put into mead. So you go back hundreds of years and you didn't turn the tap on and have fresh drinking water necessarily. People used to make a lot more fermented drinks because they were they were safer to, to drink. So mead was a very low alcoholic uh, drink. Obviously nowadays you get beautiful honeyed meads and you go to a, a fancy bar and you'd probably get a glass of mead for 12 quid or something. Uh, back then it was just like the staple drink of, of anybody and meadow sweet was an ingredient used to to flavour it and I think also it has antiseptic sort of qualities as well which were probably um, medicinal as well. Um, it's got really interesting flavour so you can use the leaves and the flowers. Um, if you want to buy, if you went online and tried to buy some like dried meadowsweet to cook with, the likelihood is it would probably be a mixture of both because that would be the easiest way to harvest it. Um, but we tend to, we do use the leaves but we tend to try and pick the flowers and the, the actual flowers themselves are almost like furry. They're like, um, that you know, they're, they're quite sort of full and light and dainty. What I would say is if the sun does come out, they get filled with black bugs, like thunderbugs. Um, so a little tip, pick all your meadowsweet flowers, just go and get a really good handful of these meadowsweet flowers. And then if you've got something yellow, like a kitchen cloth that might be yellow or a t-shirt or something, leave your meadowsweet flowers outside with the yellow t-shirt and all of those bugs will go wow that t-shirt is way more yellow than these flowers 
it looks delicious and they'll all fly over there and that gets rid of the bugs and that is genuinely what we do so we harvest them all lay them all out on a tarpaulin and just put lots of fluorescent yellow things around we have happened to have some fluorescent yellow microfiber cloths in the kitchen and they just go onto there that gets rid of your bugs and then it's a case of drying it out if you've got really nice summer weather you can literally dry it in the sun and it'll just dry and then you can rub it together and the, the pollen will come off and then you can cook with that um, if it's a bit wet like it is at the moment maybe a rear low oven or an airing cupboard or something like that i mean if you put it in an airing cupboard it is incredibly pungent so you will smell like a sweet meadow for a very long time afterwards so it has like an almost i think almond is a lot of these sort of things taste that quite almondy but um it tastes like but really like amaretto um that sort of really intense flavor which is obviously great in in desserts um i've used it a lot to flavor custards before or to put through pastries because uh, it's just got these this wonderful so meadowsweet happens at sort of the end of summer the same sort of time that you start getting some nice fresh plums so we've got some victoria plums uh in our garden and i think if you were going to make a dessert of like uh, a plum crumble but you put some meadowsweet in the in the uh in the crumble part and that would be really nice or maybe like imagine like a frangipan tart but you flavor the pastry with meadowsweet just a little bit of the dried meadowsweet um it's just incredible i tell you what because i'm going to make it this weekend anyway on well seasoned i'll give you uh, an amazing frangipan tart recipe we'll use the uh, meadowsweet in the pastry maybe a little bit in the frangipan mix as well. And then we're gonna, I'm gonna steal them beautiful plums before Dickie gets his hands on them. If you want to try our Medisweet frangipan tart recipe, then check out this week's well-seasoned episode where I'll go through it step by step. Medisweet isn't the only product on the farm which we've had a shortage of, strawberries too. We'd usually rely on them through July, but this year we've had to hit plan B. You know, when we were uh, looking a few weeks ago with Callum at green strawberries and we we're like, ah, oh, well, we'll do it with these unripe strawberries for now and then the dessert will change. Well, actually, he probably had foresight that no one else had because you can't really get strawberries to ripen up here now. It's just rained and rained and rained. Our team have been doing this for long enough to know that the weather always dictates the mood. And while extreme rain can dampen the spirits for Medisweet or strawberries, it brings some upside too. In the polytunnels at the Black Swan Garden, we've got an abundance of tomatoes, which Dickie has been checking in on. So, tomatoes we've got in this bottom tunnel. So we've got a few varieties in here. So we're growing, this year we're growing uh, sun golds, which are kind of a really sweet uh, yellow cherry. So they're, you know, you can see there's so many ripening now. They're picking about 30 to 40 kilos a, uh, a week from in here. Um, and then we've got some black opals which are a little uh, cherry as well but with a, a real sort of chocolatey colour to them uh, not quite as sweet as the sun golds but, but still really tasty uh, and then these are uh, green zebra so they've got a bit of a stripe to them but it's quite difficult trying to uh, sort of decide when they're actually ready because they, they don't change colour they just get bigger and then you've just got to check every one to see how how they're sort of softening um, there really is nothing better than a freshly ripe, sun-drenched tomato. And the one plant which I know lots of you do grow at home, with varying degrees of success, I imagine. But if you've got a bumper crop like ours, Dickie's got a smart little recipe which you can try at home. Do quite an interesting technique. So we basically pick them, uh, we mix them with 
10% uh, Yorkshire rapeseed oil and 1% Malden sea salt. Uh, freeze those and then defrost them, which sort of breaks down the structure again. We'll steam them lightly and then just blend that with a little bit of flavoured vinegar, maybe a bit of elderflower vinegar or nasturtium vinegar um, and make this beautiful, rich, super vibrant uh, sort of tomato sauce effectively, um, which all the guys are using at the minute. Callum's got it on on his, uh, on his little snack. The Abbey are using it and then it's on as like a sort of gazpacho style uh, sort of starter in the uh, summer food box. Excuse me whilst I'm just um, illegally munching this tomato. Gardeners will be upset. Um, I think a lot of people obviously grow tomatoes at home and you just end up with this glut come sort of August, September time. That process is something that anybody could do um, and would make something of restaurant quality at home but with three ingredients and, and very little technique to be honest. Um, yeah, I think like I was just kind of before I started working here with my glut of tomatoes would just make like a a chutney which is fine but actually there's so much more you can do our guests at the black swan are encouraged to explore the surroundings nothing is off limits and in the mornings we often find guests having a little rummage through our herb garden or walking the rows of fruit and veg yeah i mean you know we're always very open and honest about what we do and, and what we don't produce on at, in oldstead um and I think, you know, for me, if I was coming here, I'd just love to walk around the garden, chat to the team, look at the produce. You know, if, if you, I love chatting to guests on a morning when they've had the experience and they're looking at the produce and what we're growing and what we're doing. But almost like what would be more magical for me as a guest would be to come check in, walk around the garden and look at all this produce and then actually sit down in the restaurant and be like, Oh, that sun tomato dish that we're eating now has gone through quite a lot of process, but we actually saw those tomatoes growing, we saw them being picked. You know, like the chefs from the restaurant are out less than an hour before service picking flowers, picking fresh tomatoes, garnish to go straight on the plate. And I just think, you know, there's a lot of chefs and real credit to them for using locally sourced, properly produced produce, but when you're actually growing it yourself, it's just a completely different thing. This flavour is so relevant to us, this area, this soil, the day. We talk about the preserves and how, you know, we take elderflower vinegar, for example, I can tell you what the weather was like on the day that product was made because I know what it tastes like and I know it was obviously a sunny day, the pollen was out. It's just so important to us to, to capture the flavours and, and, you know, bring that to the guests. And, and yeah, every guest is encouraged to walk around the garden, interact with the team, like look at the ingredients, taste stuff. Like I, this is the first year we've had a real good harvest of peaches from this tunnel. And in previous years, you, you come down, you're like, oh, there's a few peaches on there. And then a week later, there's none. And it's definitely the team and the guests having, a, having a, the odd snack or two. But we encourage that, you know, it's, it's, it almost wants to be a bit of an interactive experience you know it's not just it's not just dinner it's a whole a whole experience and one lucky winner from my well-seasoned club will be joining dickie and i for a day foraging in the garden and out in the hedgerows to pick the ingredients for their dinner so i think next month's uh, competition wing is going to be in for a, 
a real treat because for me I think autumn's like end of summer into autumn's like the best time you've got all this amazing bounty of fruit in the hedgerows I was looking across there at that uh, plum tree absolutely laden with that and like there's just so much to, to pick and preserve and look at um, and really engage with the ingredients and the, the sort of natural environment so I think we'll be uh, we'll be in for a real treat and we'll we'll definitely cook up a few little treats with our with the fruits of the forage as it were Before we carry on, I just want to give you a super quick reminder that Well Seasoned is the only place to get all the bonus content that accompanies this series and have a chance to win my exclusive giveaways. We've already handed over an amazing Kasai grill and a stay at the Abbey Inn. And at the end of August, we have a Black Swan experience and we'll also be giving away two tickets to my home of food festival at Lord's Cricket Ground. Tickets for the event are flying out, but there's still time for you to join us at the festival where you'll get to try some incredible food from the most amazing roster of British chefs. I'll pop a link in the show notes, but just by subscribing to Well Seasoned, you have a chance of winning tickets and joining us at the festival. Visit www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash season to find out more. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked my team what they cook up with a humble potato. What would I do with potatoes? I, God, I don't, oh, actually, Oh, a mashed potato. That's quite easy for me. Yeah, I think I, I think I would absolutely go for mashed potato every time. <laughs> Loads of ways to do potatoes, so you've got to think outside the box. But I always I always like a bit of tapas food. So a little like patatas bravas for sharers in the middle. I think, I think they're top quality. Oh, definitely. Lots of, like, lots of cream, lots of butter, lots of potatoes. <laughs> Okay, so I might have expected that chips would top the votes. And before we get any deeper into the potato conversation, let me give you my tips on how to make the perfect triple cut chips. So, triple cut chips were originally an invention by Heston Blumenthal, obviously, of all people. He was looking to make the perfect chip. And to make the perfect chip, you need to have a really nice, glassy, almost crusty outside and then a perfect fluffy middle. And the way to do that is to, by cooking them three times. So you develop um, the crunch on the outside while still maintaining the structure of the chip. So the first step in how to make the triple cut chip is you you cut your chips into uh, nice shapes, nice, hopefully like quite square, almost like Jenga blocks. And then uh, you need to blanch them in a pan of salted water, like you would a roast potato. So just really lightly cook them. And then you need to put them into your freezer and let the outside of them really quickly cool down, um, which will open up some of the cells and just make them a little bit more brittle on the outside. But don't totally freeze the chips. Then bring them out and it becomes almost like a normal uh, chip after that. You would blanch it in fat, so you'd have some oil or preferably some beef fat or pork fat at about 130 degrees centigrade. Uh, drop your uh, once blanched chips into there and give them a little cook for say 10 minutes in the oil and then put them back into the freezer just to really cool them down quickly and then they're ready to go. And then crank your oil up to 180 degrees uh, drop your chips in 
and you will get the most crunchy, glassy, light chips with a perfect soft, fluffy middle. And if you can get your hands on some pork fat, that will make the most incredible chips of all. But of course, here in Oldstead, we do more than just great chips. We serve potato in a mousse, in a cream. We even have a chicory root and potato dessert at Roots. More on that later. And Dickie, of course, has his own take on a potato too. I feel like with potatoes, they're just a, they're just an amazing ingredient. Like I just love, you know, sticking a fork in the ground and and you know jiggling it about and lifting those first potatoes and i think it's, i think more so at this time of year because you've had nothing you know right through until sort of june july time really and sitting on the farm and the, and the first um haul of new potatoes just feels really special and like there's nothing like just washing them off steaming them and just having loads of butter on them and it's just really really nice and just sort of takes you back to your childhood but actually with what we do we try and like elevate the humble potato and i think when you put you know just potato and and eating other ingredient on a menu people are like oh i'm paying quite a lot of money for this for this meal and, and like you're just going to save me a potato and it's like well we are but we've you know worked the land we've grown this potato ourselves. it's been cared for it's been harvested by hand it's been brought to the restaurant today you know we've gone through a lot of process with it uh to put it on this on this plate um and I think that is, you know, what we're all about is elevating that um, ingredient to, to a different level, really. We tend to send like, we probably send like 90% of our new potatoes fresh to the restaurants, um, just because fresh is best. And, and that's a bit of a, a sort of cheesy saying, but it is true. And like, you can't beat a potato straight out of the ground, um, washed and, and cooked and served. We do occasionally um, preserve a small percentage so we've in the past we've done uh, fermented fries uh, which was basically just shred them uh, and then ferment them in a two percent salt brine um, and almost like kind of preserves them but it also like sort of pre-seasons them so when you fry them you've got this like already seasoned uh, sort of chip if you like uh, and then something we're working on at the minute we're not having great success with it but we're fermenting some of last year's uh, purple potatoes, so the purple flesh. Um, so we've got this like salty, bright purple mash, uh, which has got a sort of vibrant acidity to it from the sort of fermentation. So the idea with that is potentially some sort of potato flatbread maybe, um, which could be really interesting. Um, but that's something that we're working on, not had a great deal of success yet, but we shall see. It's part of the, part of the fun. Our whole, you know, belief is to showcase the produce in different ways and you know we want to i almost feel like the preserves should enhance the fresh produce um it's almost like a bit of a, a sort of support category if you like and you've got this beautiful ingredient whether it's a bit of meat or a potato or a carrot and we want to showcase that and then enhance it with pickles or preserves or ferments or you know a, a fermented version of that of that same ingredient so yeah, I don't think we need to um, get too carried away. Yeah, I'll wait to be convinced about the fermented purple potato mash. Try saying that. But knowing Dickie, he'll get it right and it'll be on the menu before I know it. Maybe. But why am I telling you about potatoes? Whilst I am a big fan, my love of spuds 
pales into insignificance against my guest Poppy O'Toole. She's built a huge online following after becoming a potato influencer. No, she doesn't influence potatoes, but she does champion them. And in just a few months, she's amassed over half a million followers to her channel. And it's all about potatoes. So I'm hoping she can teach us all a thing or two. Hi, Poppy. It's lovely to properly meet you. Well, not properly meet you because we're sort of meeting online. Um, but thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, this, this is normal meeting now, isn't it, really, online? I think it's still just like the everyday how you meet people. I started off by asking Poppy how she became the queen of potatoes. It's a weird one um, and I never know how to really describe it because it feels really egotistical but I can't help it because it just <laughs> sounds stupid. So I, um, I've been a chef for around a decade. I started in kitchens when I was about 16 working in pubs and stuff um, and then I got an apprenticeship in a Michelin style restaurant in Birmingham, started working there. I was there for about three years or so. Um, and then just moved around. So I went to another place in Birmingham, which was fine dining. I became a junior sous chef at a bank in London, which is weird, until COVID. Um, and that meant we all lost our jobs, which is valid. Um, and I just started doing some, I had never really had social media before. Um, kind of just had it privately. From a, friends from school um, and it all kind of kicked off. I started doing recipe videos and uh, we're now three years down the line and we're still doing still doing it. <laughs> so how did you teach us that? I mean, you're saying I'm doing recipe videos, but I mean like you are now an influencer, I would say, I mean, a chef influencer and you, you know, you've grown a huge following. How do you just, how do you do that? I just, I just latched on, latch on to an ingredient and never let it go. That's the base. That's the only thing that I can give you. No, I um, started off just making really nice little, they're just all tutorial videos. I kind of have, I love teaching people how to cook and it's something I always did in kitchens anyway. You know, if someone came in new, mm -hmm. I'd be the one to make sure they learn everything so that they wouldn't make any mistakes because I used to panic about making mistakes. Um, so I love teaching people and um, teaching people how to make delicious food at home in a simple way in terms of the stuff that I've learned working in kitchens how could I translate that into what people make at home and it's kind of how I cook when I'm at home which is quick easy yeah, yeah. and doesn't use that many ingredients but it's still delicious so why potatoes I just made a meal at home and my boyfriend went you should record those potatoes they're really good and I was like oh Oh, I've just been recording all day recipes. Like I really can't be bothered. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, okay, fine. I'll do them. And they were just these little crispy cubes of potatoes, really simple um, with Parmesan and, and garlic and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and it was the first video that I had that reached a million views, like, but it was quick, a million views. And it was so, so quick. And then, so I was like, okay, next, the next week, I was like, I'll do another potato recipe and see how that goes down. And that got loads of views. And then we went back into a lockdown in November of 2020. And I decided that we were going to do 25 days of potatoes and just every day a potato recipe. And it just blew up. So when I started that, I had, it's not all about followers, but it does sound really cool when you talk about it. <laughs> uh, I had um, 
100,000 followers, which already was massive, like ridiculous. I thought this is the peak of my whole existence. Like this is stupid. About a week in, I had 200,000 followers. And then by the end of it, I had over a million. And it was just, I was the next morning when I woke up, I was like, what on earth has happened? My phone was just going ding, 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 ding. And it was just um, a lot of American people as well that like had seen it overnight. And it was just like, what on earth is happening? And then I still had like five days left of this 25 days of potatoes. I was like, what on earth am I going to cook for these people? I did Dutch's <laughs> potatoes after and they looked absolutely shit. <laughs> <laughs> From a stable of jackets, mash and chips, Poppy has created the A to Z of potatoes and at letter H is the magnificent Hasselback. No, I did a, a video of a Hasselback and it got 39.4 million views. 39.4 million views. Oh my God. I think, I think that in every culture and every household and every uh, cuisine, there's potato dishes and they're very familiar. They're really familiar. They're not a scary food. You know, you, if you throw them in the oven, eventually they'll get crispy and they'll cook. Like there's nothing really too intimidating about them. Um, and they absorb a lot of flavor. So I think they're just a really un, unintimidating, what, I don't know what the word is for that, but they're just not a scary food. And they're really, che they're cheaper than most things. Mm. And they fill you up for more and they're just comforting. I think that's what the mass appeal is. Um, and it's just, I like to just try and do things I suppose I'm not really going too far from what what the traditional kind of dishes are for potatoes, but it's like, for, for example, that Hasselback just has like honey and garlic on it, which I don't know if everyone would always be like, yeah, honey no. and garlic on a potato. And it's just those little things where I suppose having the background of being a professional chef is just changing things slightly, adding something to it, adding a different flavor or using a different technique to kind of uplift that that very simple, old school, like, Hasselback. Poppy is making food accessible. Food should be enjoyed, whatever your skill level or whatever tools you have at hand. And in her latest venture, Poppy has written a book full of recipes for people with an air fryer. You've got a book coming out, which is called The Actually Delicious Air Fryer Cookbook. I don't really know what an air fryer is. I've never used one and I wouldn't, I don't know what it is. I, I know, I know of its existence because people talk about it and people tell me they cook things in them, but I, I don't even know what one looks like. Yeah, it's, it's um, a lot of proper chefs, I say, um, don't have them because you've got, you basically got them in your rationale ovens. That's kind of basically the same thing, but yeah, these yeah. are like super mini versions of, very high concentrated power and heat in one small unit. So normally it's like a basket drawer thing and you just kind of put in, and normally I think they go up to an average of like 220 degrees Celsius. So they get ferociously hot and it's all concentrated and the, the air circulates all the way around the basket. So everything, this is my demonstration of how that works. Um, looking very Kylie Minogue. Um, and it's, so it's just like a really concentrated fan oven, um, which is really useful at home when you want to get things cooked quickly and without any hassle. And also they're quite time saving and energy efficient because they just plug in. So they just go, which is easier than an oven, I suppose. Because as a chef, like obviously your recipes are quite uh, 
quite can be quite intense and then when you try and convert them for the home audience which which i often do you actually realize that most ovens at home are rubbish yeah exactly um, and you got you got to be like oh different levels and you have to try and and every one every person's oven's completely different if i go and cook at like my mom's house i have a right meltdown because i just can't use it i'm not used to it so um so it's a little bit yeah so it's more standardized i suppose they're more similar across the board than an oven so what sort of what sort of dishes can you expect in that in your book then is it like is it quick is it like fresh like fresher food or you can do like porchetta in there, which is incredible. Mm. And yeah, it's amazing. So you roll up your pork belly and fill it and it goes so crispy. And sometimes in different ovens, you can't get the pork belly as, as crispy as you want it to do. So like proper crackling. Proper crackling. I was blown away and I tested it a few times, tested it so that I could eat it more often. Um, and you can do like a whole roast chicken in there. Um, you can do, yeah, it's incredible. You just do it. You put all the butter in the skin and everything like you would, a little compound butter with loads of flavor. And then you roast it for 45, 50 minutes. And then that means on a Sunday, you can put everything else in the oven and you've got that. You can change the temperature. You can whack the oven up to however you want it when your chicken's just chilling in the air fryer. And then you can do vegetables. And I've got loads of potato recipes in there. But I try to do it so that all of the recipes, as many as I could, are actually all cooked in the air fryer, not like parboiled or or you start it off in the oven or or you I think there's one bit where I microwave I'm using all the gadgets but like um everything's tried to cook in in the air fryer so that it's easier for people and more convenient and and saving up on washing up which is my least favorite thing to do in the kitchen I had a lot of fun talking to Poppy and I have no idea why I asked but I wanted to know who Poppy would invite to dinner, dead or alive, and I'd never have guessed her answer. If you could cook for anybody in the world or in the history of the world, any person, fictitious or real, who would that be? And what potato dish would you cook for them? The fact that fictitious is in here as well is a real, real curveball, because normally it's dead or alive, but actually not oh, real you can cook. Cook for Lord Voldemort if you want. I don't mind. This is hard. Um, oh, you know what? You know who I'd actually cook for? Um, Steve Irwin. <laughs> 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 I just think he was so lovely. And I cried when he died. I remember being little and crying. So I think it'd be quite nice to cook for him. I think he'd be really appreciative. And also, I think because obviously, what's he probably been dead like 20 years, maybe something like that. Um, I think like I could blow his mind with like some Korean fried chicken, you know, like some chicken. a bit of gochujang on there. Like it would be like, whoa, what? I can't, crikey, what is it? <laughs> I can't do much to <laughs> Couldn't let Poppy go without telling her about one of our signature dishes, the potato dessert. We do a potato dessert at Roots, which you probably find quite interesting. Pray tell. So basically, instead of like making a custard, so it's cream, milk, sugar but no egg yolks. And we basically cut the potatoes on a mandolin, like quite, that's like two, three mil thick. So you get the right amount of starch and basically put them in a bag and steam them and then blend it. And it makes this like potato custard and it's incredible. And we put it in one of those, you know, the cream whipper guns um, just to lighten it a bit. And it's like incredible. Like we do it with uh, butterscotch sauce and stuff. So it's got these like sticky toffee pudding uh, vibes, but um, yeah, potato custard, give it a go. 
you see, that's where the potato limits are endless. I like, I've, I've done potato desserts before, you know, like spud nuts, great. Love a little potato donut, delicious. Um, or uh, a potato dauphine. Yeah. Yeah, but make it sweet. So I do it filled with like Nutella and then put meringue on top and make it into like a s'mores. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Amazing, thank you, bye. Next week, we turn our attentions to the end of summer and the gradual move to what I call the preserving season. We'll be looking ahead to the autumnal flavors of apples, damsons and plums and so much more. I'll be catching up with Callum to tell the story of his latest new addition to the Black Swan menu. And Dickie and I are going to get our first taste of the charcuterie we set aging at the start of the series. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can get in touch with the show. Just email seasoned at tommybanks.co.uk.